Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing faith in environmental stewardship. What does the Bible say about human responsibility to care for creation? Is burning fossil fuels a moral issue? Is it a sin? What are different religious groups doing around the country and the world in response to global climate change? We'll discuss those issues and more with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club and our two distinguished guests. Reverend Sally Bingham is founder of the Regeneration Project and lead author of Love God, Heal Earth. Stephen Pierce is a senior rabbi at Congregation Emmanuel here in San Francisco. Please give them a warm welcome. Thank you. Welcome both. Good to be here. Uh, Rabbi Pierce, uh, let's uh, begin with you in the beginning. Um, in, uh, God put uh, Adam and Eve in, in, the, um, in the Garden of Eden, uh, the Garden of Eve, Eden. And, uh, you, well, that, that just goes to show you uh, uh, the, the way the, the world was then set up. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Even, and what piece of uh, scripture do you look to that is most inspiring, offers the most guidance on, on stewardship of, of the environment and creation? Well, there are, of course, many. Uh, uh, I think that people often misinterpret the notion of um, be fruitful and uh, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So that there are those who take that as license to do whatever they'd like to do. But I, I like the, uh, the verse from the book of Isaiah which says, um, you are my, you are my uh, witnesses uh, and I am God. And then the rabbinic literature 2,000 years later commented on that. And they said that when you are my witnesses, I am God. But when you are not my witnesses, I am not, as it were, God. So that if we want to bring God into our world, we have to witness the, the notion of being stewards and have to figure out a way to protect uh, this uh, precious earth. And Reverend Bingham, what do you look to in terms of inspiration in the Bible for stewardship? Well, mine is one that I think most people have heard. Uh, in all three synoptic gospels, um, a young man asks Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And the first and great commandment, he responds, is to love God. And the second is like unto it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for me, that's a mandate for environmental stewardship. If you love your neighbor, 
You don't pollute your neighbor's air. You don't put engine oil in the storm drain behind your house. Where does it go? It goes to your neighbor. And there's one other um, that I use quite often in that environmental degradation often affects poor people sooner and faster than it does more affluent people. And Jesus said, what you do to the least of us, you do to me. And that, again, if, if one understands that the climate problem affects poor people um, more adversely than it does wealthier people, it's eventually going to affect everyone. But in the beginning, it's harder on poor communities, poor nations around the world. And Jesus' mandate is look after and serve the poor. We'll get to that more about the poor and being in brotherhood with the poor. When you were studying and growing up, did you, was there often a connection made between stewardship and scripture, or was that something that came later in your life? Well, when I was growing up, I used to listen to prayers about a reverence for the earth, and then I would hear about and know about overfishing and deforestation, and I never could understand why clergy in the pulpit didn't tell the folks in the pews that if you love God, you must be the person that takes care of God's creation. I think it happened, it was an evolving process that happened from the time I was quite small uh, until I was old enough to realize that the very people that were professing a love of God and a love of creation were the people that were destroying creation. Rabbi Pierce, was there an explicit connection made for you? or was there a You know, I remember moment? the young man when Rachel Carson's uh, Silent Spring appeared, which was kind of the, the watershed for people realizing that what we were doing to this earth was going to come back and we were going to wind up uh, sleeping and living in the waste that we were creating and that it was, in fact, annihilating species and all the, these kinds of things. And, and that, for me, that was a, an enormous wake-up call. Um, and, and I, you know, I always appreciate the, the verse from uh, Leviticus, which says, the land is mine and you are tenants. So uh, this precious earth is, uh, we're only leasees, and uh, we have to give it back to the leasor. And what did you do after, re- did you read uh, Silent Spring? What did you do uh, after that? I did. And- well, you know, I, I began, uh, you know, a lifetime quest for figuring out a way for sustainable growth, for dealing with the, the mountains of pollution. I mean, I can remember growing up in New York City, walking through the streets and finding soot all over my face because of automobiles and buses and what have you, and uh, became a, a, an activist in, in every area that I was able to. Did you find resistance among your peer rabbis? Yeah, I found resistance among lots of people. I, I remember once delivering a uh, what I thought was a burning uh, uh, sermon about the environment, and a woman stopped me, and she said... She said, um, you know, that was a very interesting sermon. She said, but I don't know why we need to hear about trees. And then she realized that maybe she hurt my feelings. She said, but you're a really very nice man. So, <laughs> <laughs> Even if you are a tree hugger. Right. <laughs> Reverend Mingham, did you encounter resistance? I certainly did. And um, we could probably share a lot of stories oh, sure. on that. But I think the first, uh, the first sermon I gave at Grace Cathedral when I mentioned global warming an email came in. Our, our services go out over the Internet on Sunday morning, and an email came in to the congregation in the next couple of days saying that they were dismayed that Reverend Bingham was allowed to use the pulpit to promote uh, world government. 
and essentially calling me a communist. What year was this? <laughs> 95. So you're part of the conspiracy. I am. <laughs> but a very nice part. <laughs> and what happened after that? Well, over the last 10 years, things have changed drastically. I mean, I mm-hmm. do think that people of faith have become to realize that this is a moral issue and that how we behave on the planet. And as Rabbi Pierce said, God put us here to be the stewards. From your scripture, God put Adam in the garden to till it and to keep it. And I think that uh, over the last few years, as more clergy have realized that this is a matter of faith, it belongs with justice, peace, and integrity of creation, and love are the factors of a faithful life, and that you cannot profess a love for God and destroy creation. Other than starting with, let's say, Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, what were some of the other big turning points or awakening points that, that uh, you think galvanized uh, communities of faith? Well, I think we were some of the pioneers. There, there mm-hmm. weren't a lot of people doing it 20 years ago. There were a few. And the interesting thing about it is that, and maybe this happened with you too, but one or two sermons and people would greet me as they would leave the cathedral or if I was in some other place and say, you know, I just never thought about this before. Very, very seldom do people say, you're wrong. I have heard that I was bringing a um, political issue into Mm -hmm. the church and that we need to keep church and state separated. However, this is so much bigger than a political issue. It has unfortunately become one. And at the same time, it's a moral spiritual issue on what does it mean to be a human being on the planet today in light of the destruction. We have to identify or re-identify what it means to be human uh, in light of the environmental crises that we're facing. What is our common purpose? Why did God put us here? And what do we have dominion over? I mean, this raises some very fundamental questions about uh, human activity affecting things that heretofore might have been thought, you know, Mother Nature, or, or you know, we can affect things that we think we couldn't affect before. Does that cause some profound rethinking of uh, the human domain and, mm-hmm. and, the, and God's domain? Mm-hmm. Let's go back to you mentioned the the poor and. and uh, you know, how does that connect in, in both traditions? You know, how does that either bring people into it or, or reinforce the moral aspect? Well, I think that f- since, um, since religion entered the world, there has been a call to be of service to others. And when we discover that the people who suffer the most from something like climate change are the poor, it enters into the social justice arena. And we are people who are interested in social justice and and fair play. And uh, you know the line, walk humbly with God, Mm -hmm. uh, do justice. Love mercy. Love mercy and walk humbly with God. From Micah. Yeah. So, Rabbi Pierce, how, do, how does your congregation approach it from, you know, the, uh, the perspective of the poor people either being affected most by these issues or first? Well, what, one of the watershed things for me was uh, when I first arrived in the community in the early 1990s, um, I, I somehow got drawn into um, a rally at Justin Herman Plaza to, to save 10,000, was 9,700 acres of virgin redwood forest in Northern California. 
And I, I willingly went along because I was interested in environmental issues. But there were 10,000 people there, and, and people had taken their children out of school from Northern Cal, you know, all the way up in Ukiah. And these were plain, simple people who were suffering because the rivers were being polluted, the, the amount of uh, 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 fog water, literally, that the redwoods capture and bring into the... Uh, uh, into all of the rivers but was disappearing because the, the, the trees were not there. And, mm. um, you know, I realized th- these are just plain, simple people that want to protect what they have and raise their children in, in, in a wonderfully clean place. And so we wound up establishing the Interfaith Coalition to Save the Headwaters Forest, which was an enormous effort uh, and ultimately uh, was a deal that was brokered by the state and federal government under the guidance of Senator Feinstein. So uh, it, it worked out really well. But I was moved by the plight of all these people who got into their pickup trucks and, 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 and took days off from work to come down to, to try to make their plight known. And you became known as the, the uh, Redwood Rabbi. That's correct. At that yes. time, um, and perhaps still are. Uh, but you also tried to influence uh, the leader of that corporation. Tell yes, us how it was that was. Maxam Corporation had purchased uh, Pacific Lumber Corporation in a hostile takeover. It had been a family firm that had been... Uh, founded on the basis of sustainability, and when they did this hostile takeout, they had to pay for their junk bonds that they issued. And uh, as a result of that, they doubled and tripled the um, the, the cutting, the clear the clear cutting of redwoods. And uh, so, for example, uh, uh, one night, the town of Stafford, uh, which had, had the mountain above the town clear cut, the uh, in, a, in a rainstorm, the entire town came down, uh, the entire mountain came down on the town with mud up to the roofs of these buildings. And, of course, Max Am Corporation claimed that this was geological instability. So we we went head-to-head with Charles Horowitz, who was the the head, the CEO of Max Am Corporation. And I I knew we were being successful when he referred to that damn rabbi in San Francisco. uh, And you went to his rabbi, or tried to get to his rabbi. I did get to his rabbi, who was, um, you know, somewhat put off by the fact that I would uh, go to Houston to... Uh, to Lobby to him to go to... That's yeah. exactly right. But we, we, we got to churches and synagogues in Houston, and, and uh, eventually I think we had enormous impact. That deal was successful and still yes, protected those, those redwoods. Yes. Now, how did that lead to either further involvement on your congregation or yourself to other environmental activism? Well, uh, you know, as time has gone by, and, and uh, we have a member of the congregation here who's also on our staff and, and drives many of our environmental programs... Uh, you know, we have really done the best to try to be stewards of the earth. So, we now compost over ninety percent of our refuse, um, and we have a, a, a you know a blanket of extraordinary programs. We've greened the synagogue, changed out all the incandescent bulbs to to fluorescent bulbs. Um, we uh, we, um, we 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 distribute um, brochures to people celebrating weddings and bar mitzvah ceremonies and baby namings and and what have you asking people to green their simcha. Simcha is a Hebrew word for joyous occasion of how they can uh, bring the notion of stewardship into uh, to a joyous time. And uh, we've done all kinds of uh, energy audits and changing out sinks and bathrooms. And, and you joined the Interfaith Power and Light early on. So, uh, Sally, tell us what that is. Well, I, I want to just go back to the Redwood Rabbi because that's where we met. Yes, it is. Several years ago when we were getting involved in saving the Headwaters Forest. 
And um, we have this program called California Interfaith Power and Light. It's actually a national program, but we have a state program. And Temple Emmanuel was one of the first congregations to join our program. And we ask all of our members to switch out to compact fluorescent light bulbs, get energy-efficient appliances. I think you have a bike rack, too, encouraging parishioners to come on their bicycles. And... um, so throughout California, we have 540 congregations that are on board or members of the program. And I, I brought this, which just um, gives some of the numbers on what our congregations have been able to reduce in terms of uh, greenhouse gas um, Emissions. deductions. Deduc- uh, whatever reductions, say it less. Yeah. Reductions, yes. Um, so we do an annual report uh, to show that churches are making a difference and if the congregation, as yours does, serves an, as an example to the community, people will go home and do this in their homes. And they find that they can save money with energy efficiency, and, and it just grows into a big household um, phenomenon when you start looking at the way you can save electricity. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guest today at Climate One is Sally Bingham, founder of the Regeneration Project, and Stephen Pierce, senior rabbi at Congregation Emmanuel here in San Francisco. Well, let's talk about the, the Regeneration Project, Interfaith, Power, and Light. How did you get other um, congregations on board? And how, tell us how that, how that grew over time in terms of as from a startup to, to a movement. Well, in, in the beginning... Um, which was back in the year 2000, we sent uh, invitations to as many congregations that we could get addresses for because we, everybody wasn't doing it all on email at that time. This is now 10 years ago in our, in our 10th year, inviting congregations to join us and giving some statistics on congregations that had already done energy audits, switched out their appliances to energy-efficient ones, and were saving money. So we were able to say... Here is St. Matthew's, and they've done X, X, and Y, and they're saving $15,000 a year on their energy bill. You can do it, too. And it grew. I mean, we, we, we did individual visits to congregations, but we also went to synod meetings and, and gr- group meetings where interfaith councils will get together and did presentations on what the congregation could be doing. And also encouraging people to join because they would be part of a national movement. And the tagline for Interfaith Power and Light is a religious response to global warming. So we were saying you'll be part of this movement to address the global warming issue and show that the religious voice is important in this dialogue. And that over time has proved to be true. And Rabbi Pierce, you joined this early on. Uh, Was economics also part of this? Well, it turned out to be. I don't think that's what originally drove it, but uh, 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 at at one point we had hoped to be able to provide congregations with a choice of service providers, and then, of course, the electric utilities sort of foiled that, and the direction went in in another way. Uh, but um, To steer them toward clean energy was the idea? That's correct. In other words, we could use a, a provider who was generating electricity in Vermont uh, and uh, through the exchange of power... Uh, Green Mountain Power yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah. That's, that was the name of the company. That's right. Um, yeah. But uh, that became quickly impractical because of the, the bars that were placed in our way. 
California had a little energy problem, yeah, this, earlier this decade, right? Okay. Well, it was, it was really directed by, uh, uh, again, a conglomerate in, uh, in Texas that uh, decided they would Enron. try to control... Oh, yes, uh, Enron, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, we had the CEO here on this stage a few years ago. Uh-huh. Um, That's when he was still welcome. Yes, yes. Um, so you joined and then economics became part of it because you saw that you could save money by doing this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, but again, that, I think that that's... That, that almost makes it feel crass. Um, it, it, that's a consequence of a much higher thing, a higher notion that we are trying to uh, leave our children a, a slightly better world than, than we inherited from our parents. But doesn't it help when a congregation is saving money to, to uh, selling? We have had to use that message to get our congregations to join the program. Not always. Some of them, some people and some congregations and groups want to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do. But often, and particularly with congregations, they're not wealthy institutions anymore. There was a time when churches were very wealthy, but they really aren't uh, mm-hmm. anymore. And when we were saying switch over to Green Mountain Energy and it costs a little bit more to get this green energy, the only way we, could, we really could be persuasive was to show that if they practice energy efficiency, they could save the money and then put that money into renewable energy. And when we made the switch and Green Mountain left California... Then we decided that we would get into some policy influencing, if we could, and started visiting the legislators in Sacramento and lobbying for more renewable energy in the California grid. And what was the response from legislators to see communities of faith coming in they, on this it issue? Was, it was amazing. We, I mean, I, I cannot tell you the number of uh, legislators who said, we have had all kinds of groups come and visit us, but nobody from the clerical world has ever been in my office before. And it was amazing. And, and, um, what sure year was every, this? Well, this would be in about 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. 2004, when we started um, getting more involved in Sacramento. And Fran Pavley has become a great friend of California Interfaith Power and Light. And She's a state senator now from mm-hmm, Southern California. State senator from Southern California who... Um, uh, we helped her with AB 32, the big California global warming bill. Mm-hmm. And we're going to help her again if we, if we have to stand in the way of um, some legislators who are talking about undoing AB 32. We'd like to have it be implemented right away. Rabbi Pierce, have you also got involved in the political side of uh, policy? Uh, we do actually try to uh, support bills and actions that are environmentally friendly, and Mm -hmm. um, we have a whole network of uh, members of our congregation who actually have created their own task force or committee or what have you to deal with with all kinds of issues that come up as they come up. Sure. So uh, picking up, Sally, on on your political activity, in 2007, an interfaith group uh, wrote a letter to Toyota. Toyota's been in the news a lot lately and asked that they withdraw the suit against California, uh, suspending uh, one of the Pavley bills. Do you recall that uh, episode where writing it was 
I don't know, it was 300 or so people, interfaith uh, leaders who wrote to um, somebody, to, to, to Toyota at that point, and said, please stop suing California to block its uh, emissions laws. Well, Toyota had represented itself as being a, a green and a company that was caring about energy efficiency cars, and then there, this... Uh, maker of the Prius. Law, sure, and, maker yeah, of they the tried Prius. to put the brakes on things, but it, it just it, it didn't work. Hard to talk about Toyota without I, I a joke. Resist. Yeah, yeah. You're both Prius drivers, yes? <laughs> yes. Okay, all right. Then you joke at your own peril. Yeah. I think that okay. was done because it was seemed as a uh, uh, hypocrisy yeah. that they would do that. Sure. And what was the outcome? I, I don't know. You, met, you, you brought it up. You must know. <laughs> you signed it. I thought you knew. Yeah. That's the way we turn to our audience. Uh. What, the, um, what the, the response there was. Um, you've also, you mentioned AB32, and you were in, uh, involved. You know, do you think he had any influence and any impact in, in getting that through? I think we very definitely did. Uh, I think that when um, we, we can talk to both sides of the political aisle, when we come at an issue from deeply rooted theological uh, foundation, we are not coming in as environmentalists or um, Republicans or Democrats. We're coming in as people who are rooted in faith, who see it as a moral issue. And we can talk from a moral responsibility perspective. And politicians also look at votes and count votes, right? So how much of that is, is an issue as well? I mean... That's obviously a big part of the religious rights uh, power. Is there is there a presence at the ballot box? Mm-hmm. What was that part of the equation too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we always talk to our legislators about how many congregations have joined our program that are in their district, and give them the numbers. And the numbers are are big. Um, if we can have our congregational clergy people talking about climate. From the pulpit, they can't. They have to be very careful about naming any kind of legislation because we're all 501c3s. But we can certainly talk about clean air mm-hmm. and uh, responsibility to the next generations. And um, without naming a bill, legislators know what we're talking about. Um, and I think that our rather progressive interfaith power and light movement has been more influential in California than the evangelical right wing folks. In other states. Here in California. Oh, you've been more effective here than the evangelicals yes. here. Yes. Interesting. Why so? Well, do you know the name Rick Warren? Sure. Yeah. From well, he's an environmentalist. So there you have one big mega evangelical church where the um, pastor recognizes that this is a matter of faith, and he would be on our side. He signed something called the Evangelical Climate Initiative have you, has he done more since then? Have you had personal interactions with Rick Warren? I have not. I only know, we only know of each other and we've spoken on the phone. But the evangelicals, contrary to what a lot of people think, are um, moving in the direction of what they're calling creation care. We might call it stewardship of creation. They call it creation care. And um, a great many of them are taking that phrase that I said early on about recognizing that climate hurts the poor people and that Jesus said, what you do to the least of us, you do to me. And that's the message that's brought the evangelicals on board with climate. They're not all there, but a great many of them are. And are they voting on this issue? 
It's hard to know. You're not a pollster, but I mean, there, there, but there's a contradiction between some of their uh, spouse political beliefs and their, and their biblical beliefs that, that that brings forward. Yes, but they they we don't talk about some of the biblical beliefs. I mean, not, when I'm sitting in a room with evangelicals, we do not talk about where we came from or where we're going. We talk about the fact that we're here. Can we here. talk about why we're here? <laughs> we talk about why yeah. we're here, and, and we are the stewards of creation. And they'll go down that road with us. Do you see the same thing happening? Uh, look, uh, you know, I think that people really f- need to figure out a way to um, form a coalition uh, that will protect the earth. And, and so there's always a lot of politicking and a lot of... Uh, speaking and and, and uh, electioneering, if I can use that term, you know, because it's not only um, uh, the, the legislation uh, that uh, that we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at litigation and uh, regulation and corporate responsibility and even uh, broad-based coalitions of consumer groups. We, we we can't rely on any one particular constituency. We have to try to knit them all together, and they don't always speak the same language. And we we, we have a distorted view of the world living in the Bay Area uh, because this is a very liberal uh, area and people think, oh, environment, terrific. But we have to recognize that there are areas of this state in which people say, well, just a minute, we're we're against any kind of government intervention or regulation of anything, uh, including the environment. And uh, there's an awful lot of pushback um, uh, among that population. Stephen Pierce is a senior rabbi at Temple Emanuel in San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. My other guest at Climate One today is Sally Bingham, founder of the Regeneration Project. Um, we're talking about political en- engagement. Um, also, you've been engaged at the, the national level with uh, supporting a climate cap-and-trade bill. Um, do you think the prospects of that are, are positive at this point? That's a very uh, uh, urgent and... Uh, uh, important question right now because now that health care has passed, we will see what happens with climate legislation. <laughs> and um, the cap and trade uh, has gotten bad press, I should say, and there are folks who say cap and trade is dead. They brought up another issue, which is cap and dividend, meaning mm-hmm. that uh, money money collected through auctioning off pollution credits, will go back to individual people. Um, all of these things are going to be in that climate bill, and I am very hopeful that it will happen, that that's going to be the next priority um, for the Senate, and that, that we'll, we'll have something, hopefully, by the end of April. We're going to take our group and be in Washington on um, the 5th of May, and I hope we're going to be walking into legislators' offices to say, vote for this uh, climate legislation. Rabbi Pierce, do you also think there'll be a national energy policy this spring? Um, You know, I often think the only thing legislators can do in a couple of months is make minute rice. Um, It just, the the process is so painful and difficult that it's really hard to predict uh, what direction it will move in. I'd like to see it move in that direction, and I I hope that it will, but I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic. It's very complex. They've been working at it a long time. Also on the whole uh, impact on uh, poor people, there are some people who say that the poor people don't get a good deal in cap-and-trade, that it will actually concentrate 
pollution in dirty areas and allow us to buy offsets and concentrate our poor our pollution in uh, disadvantaged, disempowered neighborhoods with people that don't have the power to um, you know to, to fight it. I think that's a fair concern, Reverend Bingham. Well, there is the uh, environmental uh, justice community. The, uh, very critical of some of them. Who are very critical of cap and trade who are less critical of the cap and dividend. Mm -hmm. Um, But time will tell. I mean, I'm not an expert on these policies. I I have an ear and a conversation continually with the Green Group, the big environmental organizations, Mm -hmm. and some of the scientific community who come together on a regular basis and have open conversation about these issues. And we're inclined to listen to the scientists listen to what the uh, major green groups are doing and then make up our mind about what is the right moral thing to do and then that's the position we'll take. Reverend uh, Sally Bingham is founder of the Regeneration Project. Let's go to a question from the audience. Welcome. Hi. Um, I actually work with that organization, the Alliance for Climate Education, and one of the things that we do is try to go out and spread climate awareness to students all around the country. And one of the things that we kind of butt up against it's kind of what you're actually starting to get to, which is just um, how do you deal with the fact, I mean, in addition to it being kind of a political issue, it's purely that idea of religion versus science. And that idea, to sum it up in so many words, that it's part of God's plan, there's nothing we can do about it. How, you know, what are key talking points, or how do you kind of handle that kind of discussion? If the world's going to burn up anyways, what's the, yeah, Reverend Bingham? Well, I don't think the world's going to burn up anyway. I don't think it's God's plan. And um, that's an interesting question because it does come up. There are people who say that um, we are not the uh, culprits here, that um, this is just something that's happening over time. And, And yet I think if you, which we have to do as educated, reasonable people, look at the science. And when we see that carbon dioxide emissions have increased over the last 200 years, and we see the temperature increases right along with it, we, you, you just can't deny that. And um, I, I think that mixing faith and fact is a problem, and that we, we shouldn't mix the language of, of faith and science. We need to keep those things separated. But they have become conjoined, haven't they, in, somewhat? In some ways, yes. I mean, even, I think you just use the word skeptic and mm-hmm. the deniers, the agnostics, the atheists, and all, all related to the conversation around climate. Um, in some cases, I think, I think the uh, religious language and science works working together. Uh, we talked about earlier the tithing and, and offsets has a very uh, similar Metaphor, but but back to that question, um, I think you have to ask people to look at the science and and show that just in the last two hundred years since the industrial revolution, this carbon dioxide has risen, and and um, so has the temperature, and and not let and don't we don't want to debate the science. I mean, we really, I'm not a scientist. Rabbi Pierce isn't a scientist. But we believe the scientists. And I always say that I think today's scientists are um, the, our, our modern-day prophets and that we need to listen to them. Rabbi Pierce? Uh, you know, uh, science, uh, in spite of the fact that it will tell you that it's quite precise, is, is inexact. 
And so uh, I'm, I'm certain that people are able to make a case for the fact that the, the, the facts are not what they appear to be. And, you, you know, if you take a 10,000-year period, we've had uh, uh, periods of, 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 of great cold and great heat. Uh, and as people look at that, they say, well, you know, maybe we're just in one of those cycles. Uh, but, you know, for me, the issue uh, is, is one of the tipping point. Uh, do we want to risk uh, that we are correct and that we eventually get to the point at which there is no way to recover from it and that we will have destroyed the earth and, and uh, uh, you know, and there will be no uh, way to save it? So, I mean, I think that that's a very compelling argument. What's the cost of being wrong or the cost right. of some that's insurance exactly right. to, uh, sure. Uh, next question from the audience. Yeah, thank you. I'm Ed Barry. I'm uh, the Sustainable Living Advisor to the Population Institute in Washington, D.C. And I would suggest a couple of things real quick before my question. First is the world is relatively full of humans. Uh, and, and there are a lot of scientists who are showing that we are, in fact, in ecological overshoot in total for the globe. So my question is, since this overuse of capacity means that one one human's rights are another potential human's misery, uh, and maybe between now and the future of life on the planet, uh, how do we deal? My question is, how do faith-based organizations deal with this, this global reality of overshoot and what it means morally? Population. A lot of environmentalists don't like to talk about population. Religious groups don't like to talk about population either, but I think most of us recognize that it is a problem. Um, we've also seen the statistics change as people become more educated, that the higher level of education with women, the lower number of children. And there are a lot of uh, Christian missionaries who are in the southern uh, hemisphere who are teaching education. And as far as I'm concerned, at least for now, that's that's the road we're going to be on, which is to educate women and men in the places where there are too many children being born and, in many cases, unwanted children. But I think that education is the answer, the short-term answer. Well, you know, I would agree that that certainly is very important, but, but I also believe in innovation. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've had uh, points in history in which People were convinced that we were running out of something, whether it was a coal or natural gas or, or the, the decline of oil production. And then all of a mm-hmm. sudden, some new technique comes along. And, and I think that we need to think out of the box, that we need to find new ways of, uh, of dealing with the population that we have. Uh, and, um, and perhaps, and, we, and we, we spoke briefly before the program tonight about nuclear energy. I think that that is one of the areas that many environmentalists are now signing on to where they had been quite hostile to that because that's a way to uh, decrease uh, greenhouse gases. Gases. The statistic that I think is always extraordinary is that in this country, the 104 nuclear power plants generate 20% of the electricity, but it also generates 70% of the clean energy because they run 24-7 uh, and as opposed to a coal or oil or gas plant that has to shut down. Uh, and um, you know, I think that our government is beginning to move in an innovative direction with some of the technology that is now appearing for not only the generation uh, by nuclear energy, but also the way of dealing with the environmental waste. Right, and it's clean if you don't if you don't count the waste. The electrons are clean. 
but the but the waste is a, is a huge. That's a, a whole topic unto itself. Let's take the next question from the audience. Um, hi, my name is Ben. I also work with the Alliance for Climate Education, and my question is more on the theological side of the conversation. Actually, um, I've heard in the past people talk about environmental stewardship. I've heard criticism that it kind of uh, implies a vertical power structure between people and the environment, have ideas of ownership. And I was wondering, first of all, if you guys had anything to say to that um, from you know, scripture and quotes that might uh, back that up or refute it. And then also, um, do you run into that complaint ever in your work when you're working with people from the more progressive side of the spectrum who may actually be skeptics when it comes to religion? Do you ever run into that sort of uh, schism and how do you uh, negotiate that? You know, there is a bifurcation in many people between the real world and the world of, of religion, which is somehow viewed as being up in a, some kind of ivory tower and shouldn't be involved uh, in, in matters uh, like the environment. Uh, but if you, you know, if you search the scriptures, there are, there are so many opportunities to recognize that our progenitors understood the value of uh, keeping this earth a safe place. The, the whole uh, issue of the sabbatical year where you stop growing things, the jubilee year where land reverts back to its original owners, uh, uh, giving the earth a rest. Uh, and, uh, and that's just one of, of many, many examples. I think that's an important question. Stephen Pierce is a senior rabbi at Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco. Sally Bingham? Well, and I just might add that when I was in seminary, there were folks who were trying to figure out, now let's go back 20 years, what is the right word for the human purpose on the planet? And by using the word stewardship, it's just what he suggested, that that the world has become so anthropocentric, but that maybe God intended to have squirrels be just as important as humans, and who are we to make the decision that, that we have the power to either fix or break something on the planet. But I have come over the years with all this work working on environmental stewardship to really believe that stewardship is the purpose for our being here. That, And particularly when we look at the amount of degradation that humans have caused on God's creation, then aren't we the people that ought to be fixing these problems that we caused? That makes us the stewards. I think. Next question. Uh, thank you for your comments. Uh, I, I'm often frustrated by the, the schism between uh, kind of science deniers and the religious community's role in that, or part of the community's role in that, uh, and uh, the need to understand science and to appreciate it and to bring it into the entirety of how we understand the world. So I, I, I do see a bit of hope, and I want to hear your comments on it, where so many, if not all, spiritual traditions talk about the interconnectedness of all of living things. Uh, and then there is a, you know, a growing field of kind of systems thinking. Uh, Rachel Carson began it with her work. Donella Meadows and her group uh, really advanced it. And they talk about the interconnectedness of systems, much like uh, ecosystems. I'm curious if there's a connection uh, and a hope for bringing those uh, thoughts together. Reverend Bingham, you want to take a first crack at interconnectedness? Well, that's, a very, that's a very Buddhist um, perception of the world with the interconnectedness and they um, say that if you hurt one part of the whole you're hurting the whole thing Mm -hmm. and I think that that interconnectedness is something that we all all religions teach we're all part of something greater than ourselves and we have a responsibility to the whole and um, are you hopeful oh absolutely 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that religion is going to be the voice that really changes the way people think about our energy use and the way we behave. I, 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 there's so many times in history where the moral voice of religion has stepped up and things change. The abolition of slavery is a perfect example, mm-hmm. led by the religious community. The civil rights movement, Martin Luther King was quoting scripture. Um, I think that as we have to wean our way off of fossil fuels into a new way of being, it's going to be the voice of religion and the moral responsibility that we bring to the conversation that's going to, to um, what you earlier called a tipping point, but a tipping point in the good sense. Uh, I actually would like to uh, uh, have a slightly different focus, uh, and that is, uh, we, you know, we have a, a, a microcosm in which we are each our own little universe, and then there's the the um, the, the macrocosm, the the whole uh, universe world. And uh, I, I think that if we were to begin with personal sustainability, you know, how, how do we? There are so many people that speak of of very noble causes but their own personal sustainability is totally neglected, whether it's the way they eat or look or um, uh, you know, treat uh, the, the people that surround them. Sure. So if, I think The 6,000-square-foot house is green. That's exactly right. Yes. So I think that if, we, if each of us were to start with our little microcosm, uh, and, and that became viral, to use the contemporary word, Think of how the world would really change. So I'm, I'm a, an advocate of personal sustainability. So start with the individual, and Absolutely. you're hopeful. Next question. Good evening. I'm interested in your both of your stances, bringing into the moral idea of the separation between church and state. I mean, so often when a religious leader voices their moral opinion and it matches ours, and they lend that towards legislation or trying to promote change. You know, we, we're all thrilled and yay, you know, that religion is getting involved in environmentalism. But when a religious leader steps forward and forces a moral right, if you will, into the community that maybe the liberals disagree with, like, for example, abortion or gay marriage, then suddenly, so many of the people are saying, well, but the separation between church and state. What right do you have to force your moral opinion on me if so, I don't agree with that? So I'm interested in your, in your concept it's a great question. of it really where, is. where does the division of church and state, where is that line drawn in your own opinion? I, I always think that, um, that the statement that I like the most about a clergy is that it is our role to comfort the discomforted and to discomfort the comfortable uh, and uh, if we can't do that, uh, then we shouldn't be, you know, if we just want to tell people what they want to hear, uh, we, we have failed miserably. And, and you know, uh, Reverend Bingham has been on the, literally on the firing line of people that have gone after her because uh, she has spoken the truth. And, uh, and I'm sure that, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but, you know, you're, you're proud to have done that. And, and I would be proud as well. But, the, but let's try to see if we can answer that question, because that's a really hard one. I mean, she's, I think what she's saying is, if, if I get in the pulpit and put my moral view out there mm-hmm. and impose it on a congregation, 
but it doesn't happen to be the right one. Of course, I think it is, but... Um, but they might agree with you today, but disagree tomorrow. So objectively, when is it okay? Well, but I think, too, aren't you, Rabbi Peer, saying our, we are, one of our roles is to invite people into a different way of thinking. And I don't believe, at least I certainly don't, tell people they have to do this or have to do that or they're going they're to be damned. They're not going to listen anyway, right? Right. <laughs> or, or, or that there's, they're going to be damned to hell if they don't take this stand on something. We don't do that. I mean, we're, we're trained not to do that. So it's, a, it's, it's kind of a hard question to answer because it's almost um, hypothetical in a, in a way. Sally Bingham is the founder of the Regeneration Project. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing faith and stewardship at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Next question. Good evening. Um, as a uh, veteran of many of these battles on environmental issues, I want to thank both of you for your many years of leadership, including the Headwaters case, where the organization I worked for, As You So, did the shareholder activism on that, and the faith-based community started that movement on apartheid, fighting apartheid. Uh, I'm inclined to take issue with the rabbi's suggestion that nuclear energy is somehow clean or green. That's another mm -hmm. subject. The uranium mining itself is very devastating. But a question first for Sally Bingham. Uh, despite your uh, suggestion that some liberal theologians and Rick Warren types are moving toward creation care, there are still millions of Americans who have an adherence to the philosophy of the rapture, that uh, the next coming of Jesus will take everybody up and leave the rest uh, to uh, burn here, you know, so it doesn't really matter whether we save the trees or the climate. And I wonder how you uh, deal with those people and how you can counter that kind of thinking. And I guess my time's up. I had another question for the rabbis. Yeah, we'll take Thank one. You. Thank you. So. Well, it's a good question, and it, and it often comes up in, in groups like this. And I am not one of those believers in the rapture, so I'm really not um, qualified to answer the question. Do you think everybody knows what the rapture is? Well, he said when, that, that the world will come to an end, and Jesus will return, and the people who have professed Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be saved, and everybody else goes to purgatory or somewhere, right? Um, now, because I'm not an expert on that, I don't believe that, I did ask a very dear friend of mine, a man named Richard Sizick, who is the former president of the National Association of Evangelicals, how prominent is this voice? And Richard Sizick said, they're a loud voice, but they are a minority. And he also said that there is nowhere in scripture that says you can destroy creation to bring Jesus back. And that anybody who thinks that way, it's a heresy. So that came from him. I have another question. Uh, uh, this is actually a quote in your book uh, from Richard Sizek, uh, in which he says, the good news is that the climate change, climate deniers, aided and abetted by the religious right, are losing all the arguments on all counts, theology, politics, and science. Do you think that's still true today when polls show that the number of people who are doubtful on climate change are increasing and that science has, has been brought into doubt? Well, I think that some of those numbers are dropping in terms of people who have climate change as a priority issue. Mm -hmm. Those numbers are dropping largely, I think, due to the economy. But I'm not sure that theologically those numbers would change much. If you ever did accept climate as a moral issue and a spiritual issue personally, I don't think you could change your mind 
um, because you have less money now. I mean, right. I, I, I believe it could not be a priority issue to address, but I don't think that you could actually flip it to not being a problem. The number of people who think climate change may have been overstated, that it's not as urgent, that it's been, been hyped by the media, those numbers are also increasing. So it's their economic relativism. It's also the fact that whether there's a campaign or doubt about science, that, that it's, you know, or just natural sort of a reversion to what's taken as uh, conventional wisdom. The number of people who are skeptical are increasing, which kind of, not to mm-hmm. challenge your hope, but, but it, it is a very challenging time. Well, I am still very hopeful, but I, I would agree that the, the skeptics or the deniers do a better job messaging than those of us who are trying to make something happen on this issue. They've won the last yeah. couple of innings of this game. And every time something happens, like the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, made an error in saying that the Himalaya Mountains would were, were going to be uh, all the snow would be melted in by 2035, but in fact it's not going to happen till 2055. Well, that doesn't change the fact that it's still melting, but people want to grab it and say, "See, they're wrong." So all their science is wrong, and I think that therein lies the problem doesn't change the moral dimension of the issue either, whether yeah. it's 20 years, et cetera. Um, next question. A quick comment on the rapture. Uh, one of the key phrases that strikes me is that it says that when people are expecting it, that's not when it's going to come. So anytime someone brings that up, they've put it off for some period of time by doing so. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> I feel much better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you myself. do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mention it daily. Yeah. Okay. My question is coming from uh, the UK just a few months ago, moving back to this country, where I got involved in Transition, which is a uh, worldwide effort around these issues. I wanted to ask you each to address the international dimension of your work. Excellent question. Um, Rabbi Pierce? Well, you're the one who's doing the international okay. stuff. Well, so. I, I've not done a lot, but I have been um, to some places around the world working with other religious leaders on having international interfaith uh, climate statements produced uh, recently with ARC, which is the Alliance for Religion and Conservation run by Martin Palmer. Um, Susan Stevenson and I went to London and met with the leaders of 30 religious organizations around the world who are working to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions they are all communities of faith. And an interesting one, we met with the uh, people from China who have committed over the next three to five years to have every single Tao temple in China have solar panels on it. And they, what they were saying at this conference is we're not going to wait for the U.S. federal government or the people who were all meeting in Copenhagen for an international treaty on climate, we're not going to wait for this to happen. We're going to do it anyway. And all these 30 uh, groups of major groups of religious organizations said, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to wait for you. We're doing it anyway. We're committed. Uh, Rabbi Pierce, we, um, international dimension, we've talked about economics, we've talked about faith. Uh, there's also a security dimension. Will the state of Israel be safer if the world moves away from Middle East oil? Well, I, I think that uh, not only Israel, but this country uh, will find that its uh, economic base is greatly strengthened by not being dependent on foreign oil. 
uh, and that's, that is one of the reasons that I, that I am in favor of nuclear energy. But the truth of the matter is that that, that will uh, reduce the power of uh, dictatorships that control enormous natural resources, and, and so that will benefit Israel. Um, and parenthetically, I would just mention that one of the things I'd like to see more of throughout the world is something that Israel does real well, and that's forestation. It's, it's the only country in the world that has a net gain in the number of trees annually, and I'd like to see programs throughout the world because that will help to cleanse the air and rebuild some of what's been destroyed. There's also some work uh, innovation in Israel with regard to electric vehicles and, and other things, so that um, so Israel would be safer. Uh, and the petro-dictators, I think, is what Thomas Friedman refers to. Yes. Um, Reverend Bingham, um, you mentioned the international process, and you've been involved somewhat in that. Do you think that you mentioned not going to wait for governments? Do you think the international process, the UN negotiations, is going to bring meaningful change, or needs to happen from congregations and the bottom up? It's both. It's a, it's a top-down and a bottom-up. And I think that most uh, major movements now, we're back, let's talk about the U.S. for just a second. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., I think that um, major uh, movements happen from the bottom up. Um, and there are oftentimes, particularly lately, where I didn't think those folks in Washington were actually paying much attention to those of us that elected them and put them there. Um, it seemed that they were living in a world that was not related to America and the grassroots. Um, so because of that, the grassroots people have to make their voices heard. I mean, that's why I think it's important for all of us to call legislators and get involved in these issues that we care about and not let folks um, who are in Washington make decisions for us unless they know how we really feel about these issues. So when you get to an international conference, it seems to me, if I understand what went on in Copenhagen, the most recent big conference on climate change is that the rest of the world recognizes global warming and greenhouse gas emissions as a very serious problem and that the United States is the culprit here dragging its heels because we have this democracy that has to have 60 votes to make something happen when you have a little uh, town or an island of Tuvalu out in the South Pacific, that water is contaminated uh, by salt because the salt water is getting into their fresh water uh, water tables, and their homeland is going underwater. And we, our Senate, is is holding back on on the votes we need to get climate legislation. And I wish I I wish I had been in this business longer so that I really had some profound statement to say, but I'm sure that all these folks here know as much as I do about the climate and the poor people and the U.S. holding back on international treaties. I mean, it, it's, it's a shame. And the messages, the, the Parliament of the Maldives held a, a meeting underwater. You may have seen those photographs to, to dramatize the fact that their nation is disappearing because mm-hmm. of the acts, uh, not of their own doing, but of the rich industrialized countries. And yet, that those pictures of Pacific islands disappearing uh, don't seem to really move the U.S. population or the U.S. Uh, government. I mean, is that a fair statement? So far it is, absolutely. There are a few legislators. I think that uh, John McCain recognized 
uh, global warming as a serious issue a few years back. Yeah. And he went off and did his own studies. He went to Alaska. He went to the Antarctic. He talked to the people that live there. Lindsey Graham has just done that. The Republican from South Carolina who is now on the um, climate legislation bill that's going to be proposed, he did his own study. He went to all these different places in the world where the climate, the melting of the glaciers and the climate problem is actually affecting people. And then he made up his own mind. Now, maybe, maybe all those legislators need to visit other places in the world. Now, I wouldn't want to place the blame solely on the legislators. These are people who respond to public opinion and to emails and letters and phone calls. And if we expect them to do anything, we've got to rally the forces out there and get people to be phoning and doing all those things because all of a sudden they'll sit up and take notice and say, gee, we think that's a very good idea. In fact, we thought of it. <laughs> Which is, you know, I, one environmentalist said to me that $4 gasoline did more than the environmentalists ever did in terms of moving people, etc. And so it comes back to that very kind of hard-nosed self-interest, whether it's the commons or a per-person in Africa or the, or the Pacific, uh, gets back to how does, what's in it for me. Yeah, your pocketbook. Yeah, yeah. Sally Bingham is... Uh, founder of the Regeneration Project. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing uh, stewardship and faith, also with senior rabbi Stephen Pierce from Congregation Emmanuel. Um, what, we're getting toward the end here. Um, let's talk about the future in terms of policy. You're talking about um, grassroots actions. Um, with, at the Regeneration Project, do you have any priorities uh, in the policy world that you'd like to see happen in the, other than a national climate po- uh, legislation? What would you like to see happen? Well, well certainly the national climate legislation is a very high priority. And also, when we hear that uh, AB 32, the California Global Warming Bill, may be threatened, that is a priority as well in terms of legislative action that we are going to be working on. But we'd also like to have every congregation in California uh, be a member of our program, cut their carbon emissions, and serve as an example to the community. How many, do you, how many do you have in California right now? We have a little over 500. And recently, uh, congregations have been putting solar on their roofs, which is hugely exciting. In several, there are several different models on how to do it. We have the, the um, uh, formats and different, different creative ways that congregations have made this happen that are on our website. To pay for it. To pay for it. It's... Um, there's, there's rebates. We don't get tax deductions because we're already a nonprofit. Um, but we have very creative folks in some of the congregations around California who have figured out um, ways to make it happen. And then they're getting 70% of their electricity from their roofs and saving an enormous amount of money. The payback is probably 8 to 12 years, but they're trying to look long-term and do the right thing. Rabbi Pierce, is there uh, solar panels at Temple Emmanuel? We have a dome, so it's kind of hard to be able to do that. <laughs> uh, there, actually, there are people that are now working on these tiles that will, will actually be solar receptors. But one of the things that we did was kind of interesting. We, we had a three-hour parking zone around the congregation, which meant four cold starts a day. Somebody would arrive at 9 o'clock uh, and have to move uh, the... It was a two-hour parking uh, would have to then move the car at 10 o'clock and then move it again for lunch. And then once again in the afternoon, we met with the city, and they were extraordinarily responsive, and they, they realized the, the power of 
eliminating two of those cold starts for all of our staff members, and they changed the uh, the parking zone. They increased the number of hours so that people come at 9 o'clock to a four-hour zone. At noon, they go out for lunch, uh, and they take their cars. They come back at 1, and then at 5, they drive away. So... Um, uh, this is again the microcosm how can we do these little things that collectively will make an enormous difference of course when they stop driving cars or ride bicycles or carpool then you're really we we have the bike racks although kids in our preschool think it's a jungle gym so uh, (laughs) we had to deal with that and biking with kids probably uh, not not so convenient so we're at the point where uh, last comments here we have to wrap this up but if you're hopeful you want some national policy to happen on on climate legislation you think it should be bottom up top down what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of months. I, I, as I say, I wish that I'd been in this long enough to have some historical moments to draw from, but I really think we are going to get climate legislation. And uh, I think the folks... And you're that convinced are, that's a good thing, that, that what some people say is a flawed bill uh, could be worse. Lester Brown, who, who actually wrote uh, uh, a, a copy on the back of your book, was on this stage a few weeks ago and said Waxman-Markey might be worse than nothing. Well, I, I, I would probably disagree with him because I think we have to have something to show the rest of the world that we're serious about this. If, if China and India are, are going to address this issue, we already know that uh, China is creating more greenhouse gases than the United States now. They have surpassed us in their emissions. But they're also way ahead of us in energy efficiency and renewable energy. They're producing more wind, more sun. Now, uh, or not, they're not producing the sun. Uh, solar. <laughs> not yet. The solar. Um, but they'd like to. But the, yeah. but the issue. They'll but try. The, the yeah. issue is, and the message that needs to get out, and I think is getting out, is that we're going to be number two in the world, not number one anymore, in terms of leading the economy. The the nation that takes on clean green technology is going to be the nation that leads the world. And I do believe that our senators are going to wake up to that fact, and we're going to get there. Rabbi Pierce? You know, some years ago, a young man complained to me. He said, why did God ever make the world like this? He said, I could have done a much better job. And I said, that's exactly why you're here. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, I'd like to thank Rabbi Stephen Pierce and Reverend Sally Bingham for their comments here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming.